John Rose is the Global Chief Technology Officer of Products and Operations at Dell Technologies, and he's helping guide the company on its journey as one of the largest and most influential in the tech world. From hyperconnectivity to 5G to computing at the edge, John says that Dell Technologies has had a hand in it all, and each of those innovations will eventually change the internet and the world as a whole. He explains all of that and more on this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have on the other line, John, what's going on? Uh, not too much. Uh, busy as usual. Busy as usual, indeed. Um, well, you have been traveling all over the world talking about uh, amazing things, amazing technologies. And today, we brought you in to talk a little bit about yourself. So how did you get started in technology? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I, uh, I have... Uh, let's call it been on the technical side since birth. I think I, you know, I was one of those people that had every computer pre x86 you can imagine. I think I still have two K pros in my basement, which are CPM machines for the real geeks out there. Uh, but, but the bottom line is, you know, when I went to university, I kind of flipped a coin between law and engineering. I literally flipped a coin and I, sometimes I joke that I lost and it landed on engineering, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, off I went and, uh, you know, I started at a company called Cabletron Systems in the uh, kind of late 1980s, early 1990s as it was growing. And it turned out to be kind of 50% of the, the kind of layer one, layer two networking world and progressed there all the way to the CTO role. And then, uh, you know, and then just continued on that journey. I, I, found, I took uh, Cabletron into a different phase with a company called Terraces and then uh, left there after we took it private, went over and became the CTO of Broadcom. So I went to the semiconductor space and went from there over to Canada to be the CTO and head of R&D for Nortel up in Canada, which is telecom, optical, unified communications. Then uh, when I uh, moved on from there, went over to run advanced technology for the largest Chinese technology company in the world, one in the news quite a bit now called Huawei. Uh, and then uh, you know, one day I was minding my own business out in California working for Huawei and EMC called me up and said, hey, we're looking to do a big shuffle and we need a new CTO. Are you interested? And, uh, I said, that sounds fun. I remember telling Joe Tucci that the reason I'm interested is I predicted, and this is about eight years ago, that we would end up right in the middle of a hurricane. You know, this, this company was likely to be in the middle of the, the action. And it turns out I was right. I wasn't exactly sure if I was right at that time. Uh, and then about four years ago, we announced a combination of Dell and EMC, and we put the two companies together. I led the technology integration of the two, and, uh, and, uh, and now here we are as Dell Technologies, the largest uh, infrastructure IT provider in the world. Uh, so it's been a journey. <laughs> yeah, and you know, when people think of Dell, obviously with such a strong consumer brand um, and, you know, laptops all over the world, uh, hardware all over the world, this Dell Technologies is, you know, really a center for innovation and um, has all of these amazing things going on. I, I'm curious, like, what's the scope of your role as uh, as global CTO at Dell Technologies, and what what are you all working on that you're excited about? Yeah, yeah, you know, I sometimes joke that my job is to make sure Dell Technologies doesn't drive off a cliff because we missed a technology inflection. Uh, you know, I have a lot of roles. I'm the chairman of the Cloud Foundry Foundation. I'm responsible for the, the overarching technology activity in terms of the uh, 
especially the longer term advanced technology work. Uh, but 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 at the bottom line, it's you know the role of the CTO in a very large company like this is is making sure that our strategies, activities, our insights, uh, all the way to Michael, are aware of what's coming next. You know this is a you know this thing about technology industry that you you have to keep moving. You know standing still is a bad thing. In fact, it's a death sentence in most cases for most companies. Uh, we all we all understand that. But when you're in motion. Um, moving without, let's call it uh, radar to understand what's coming at you and to be able to assess and understand how to navigate the technology ecosystem is incredibly dangerous. There's lots of examples where people, you know, got enamored with the technology, bet on it, and it turned out to be the wrong one. And if you're a small company, I guess you can recover, uh, or maybe you can't, but with a company of our scale, we have to do that across a massive set of technologies. In fact, today, my, my, my remit is really helping us develop the strategies to navigate everything from edge to 5G to AI to the, uh, the, the, the next generation of cloud environments to the data ecosystem. There's just a huge surface area of emerging technology challenges coming at us. And my job using a combination of open innovation, uh, traditional research, collaboration in the industry, coordination with our businesses is to make sure that we head in the right direction as we navigate all of these interesting, uh, let's call it inflections that are coming at us. Yeah. You know, and one of those, one of those inflections um, that you've, you've talked about, and I would love to hear you, uh, you know, explain more to our audience is the future of the internet, uh, a, a loaded, loaded question for sure. But, um, but you've talked about this in the past. And I'm curious, like, what do you believe, um, you know, is is the future of the internet? Yeah, yeah, you know, it depends on the time frame. Funny enough, I was at a, uh, the I was at the 50th anniversary of the internet event at at MIT about a, about two months ago, and, and uh, me and Bob Metcalf, who's the creator of Ethernet, uh, a long time ago, we were on the kind of closing panel and. They asked us to predict the internet 50 years from now, which, by the way, anybody trying to predict anything 50 years out is, uh, you know, at best guessing. Um, but that being said, you know, we had a good discussion about what we think is going to happen. And, you know, there's there's a number of things that are going to occur because of the internet, which is the broad connectivity of everything. Um, the first, obviously, is that that connectivity is going to grow and it's going to become much more of a intelligent system. Right now, we kind of interact with the network and we tell it what to do and it, it works on our behalf to some degree, but it doesn't understand us. What's happening is the networks and the communication systems, and even the cloud infrastructures are starting to become aware of what we're trying to do. They are taking over work that we historically would have to do and they're working on our behalf, whether that's with you know smart assistants like the Alexas and Series and Google Voices of the world or whether it's AI in our business process. That, that is intrinsic to the internet, intelligence being pushed into the net, into the cloud. Um, beyond that, we know that the result of this hyperconnectivity is going to allow us to do things in very different ways uh, that will change the way we experience life. Our user experience will change. A great example we gave at that event was, imagine collaborative AIs working together. And the example we were talking about was, imagine sitting in a a classroom, you know, a bunch of students observing a, a professor and taking notes. Now, that sounds like a very benign thing. But in the hyper-connected world, this future of the internet, imagine if in the room with you was, you know, a number of AIs. Maybe everybody had their own personal AI. And those things were actually gathering information that you didn't gather. They were looking over your shoulder, if you will, taking notes for you. But more importantly, they were working together. And when all was said and done and that lecture was over, the actual notes, the information you had wasn't just the information you saw, it was the collective wisdom analyzed and digested into something very consumable in real time 
because the AIs in the system, because all of the connectivity was there in, between the people in that room. There's this concept of collaborative technology that we talk about, but it largely doesn't exist. But the internet and its connected state and the moving of compute into it gives us the ability to do those kinds of things. Uh, connected cars are not just connected to us. They are connected to each other. That is a function of the future of the internet. And when that happens, you get an N squared advantage. You know, one plus one equals 100 instead of one plus one equals two. And so for us, that's the most exciting thing. Now, huge challenges. We're going to create a lot of data. We're going to process more data than we've ever seen. We're going to have more bandwidth than we're ever going to have than we've ever experienced or contemplated. And we have to scale this thing to basically build infrastructure to make this happen. But assuming we do that, it's going to be pretty exciting what's going to happen in terms of this collapse collaborative experience between people and machines that, that will characterize this hyper-connected internet of the future. And how does 5G play into that? Yeah, 5G is super important for, for a couple of reasons. The, the, the three things that are coming in 5G that most people don't understand, well, one of them they do, two they don't. The first is, yes, we're going to have more bandwidth in 5G. Uh, it's going to be faster than 4G because of the, the, the frequency spectrums it operates in, because of the radio technology involved in it. And so we'll have faster pipes, which is good. It means we can put more things into a mobile environment and process more data. Uh, the two things that people aren't aware of that's coming with 5G, the first is 5G will be the first what we'll call cloud-friendly wireless network. Today, when we deal with cellular, we just see it as a pipe. It doesn't actually participate yeah. in our applications. It's just, it's just bandwidth. In 5G, because of a thing called network slicing and programmable interfaces, you as a user, uh, an IT professional, a CIO, when you contemplate deploying your application in the past, at best you could do is get some connectivity over 4G. In the 5G world, you'll be able to specify the behavior of that connectivity. You'll be able to decide that that particular application needs real time. It's incredibly important. And instead of just hoping it gets it from the cellular environment, your cloud experience will actually instruct the 5G experience to set up and dedicate bandwidth to create a network slice to push things all the way out to the mobile device so that the entire end-to-end -end system will be participating. And then, then lastly, 5G will be the first place where we actually see the, the manifestation of a, a kind of global edge, uh, this idea of compute out in the real world in real time. Now, it'll happen in many other places, but it won't be a global kind of footprint or a national footprint before it happens in 5G. The thing that makes that important is right now, if you're an innovator, if, even if you're a CIO and you have a, a problem to solve, and the problem requires real time, meaning the, the, the time between an event and the action you have to take is, let's say, five or 10 milliseconds, incredibly fast, way faster than you could accomplish by moving back to a public cloud or into your data center, mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're talking about the real world. If you want to deal with that today, you, you quite frankly either have to just hope the device itself is autonomous enough and can do this, or you can't do it. When we have edges being built, especially 5G edges, and they start to look like clouds, now you'll be able to push applications and workloads into a consumable as a service cloud, a new kind of cloud, an edge cloud that will allow you to get access to effectively infinite capacity out in those real-time domains. Now, that all sounds very academic, but there's already examples of the disruptions coming. Google has a project called Stadia. Stadia is going to disrupt, in, in their opinion, and I think it's probably true, the gaming industry. Because what they're doing is they're basically thinning out the device, saying you can get a full-blown gaming experience on a Chromebook <laughs> because you don't need the processing on the Chromebook because we're going to move the processing literally one hop into the network to the edge in real time. And by doing that, you suddenly have a really interesting disruption occurring because if you look at the global footprint of gaming consoles, 
on average, they probably run at 1% utilization. So you have about 99% of the hardware capacity just sitting there idle most of the time. Google's hypothesis is, well, if you move all of that compute capacity and aggregate it, but still keep it in that kind of 50 millisecond real-time boundary, now that hardware can run at, I don't know, let's say 95% utilization, which means that you effectively will be able to reduce the cost of gaming if you're successful with this by upwards of 95% on the hardware and power consumption side. That's a very powerful disruption. There's still a lot of work to be done, but it's the first of many that are going to happen because edge connectivity and edge capacity in the compute world is present. So that, you know, very exciting for us. And, uh, you know, but 5G is the first place where those things happen. It's not the only place, but it's incredibly important to watch because it will characterize a faster, more intelligent, and more real-time internet that's forming that we're going to run our businesses on. So do you feel like we're in a transitional phase now? Do you feel like this, like in for IT, um, do you feel like we're at the, you know, cusp before something, yeah. something big? Are we already into it? Yeah, we're already into it. Actually, about two years ago, um, it, there's a lot of transitions that go on in our industry. But if, if you look at the macro one going on right now, about seven years ago, uh, most enterprise CIOs and most uh, business people in the IT world and many of the technologists started to have this belief that we were heading towards an era of centralization. We were going to basically take all the IT all over the world, things in our factories and hospitals and small sites and sales offices, and we were going to shove it all into something in the center. In this case, maybe the vision was a single mega cloud that, you know, one public cloud somewhere else that somebody would run for you and the world would be simple. And we lived in that world, to be perfectly honest. Most people believe that was the destination for probably about the last seven years. But about two years ago, when terms like IoT started to materialize and the first edge discussions happened and people started to use the word smart in front of things like factory and hospitals and cities, they realized that you can't do it that way. In fact, centralization wouldn't work because the speed of light still applies. Laws of physics apply. You need real-time processing behavior, creating more data than any data center in the world could support. And so two years ago, we transitioned into the phase we're in now, which is a, a, a belief that we will actually have decentralized topologies, meaning we will push the topology into the real world, into the factories, into the cities, into the hospitals. We'll still be using public clouds and private data centers and SaaS providers. And even the 5G infrastructure will be part of this, but it will be very distributed, but its behavior will be orchestrated as a multi-cloud. Now, these are all buzzwords, but they characterize a change that two years ago, the word multi-cloud didn't exist. Distributed was a bad word. Centralized was what it was all about. Public clouds and centralization were the thought process that most people were believing. Today, by and large, two years into this, this shift, most customers have realized that they will be building a multiple cloud environment. They need to make it work like a system. And the topology it runs on will not be in one centralized data center. It will be distributed across core and edge and a public cloud environment. Um, that's a big shift because it changes your strategy. Five years ago, you might have said, I'm just going all in with this particular cloud provider. I'm going to turn my private environment into a private cloud and run everything there. Today, that just simply isn't how, how things are going to play out. And it requires you to build different relationships, invest in the management and orchestration layer, into the user experience across the multi-cloud, and incorporate new technologies like 5G into your thinking. So it's a big shift for people. Problem is, we don't have like a, a, a big announcement in the industry that says the transition has begun. In fact, most people missed that transition and are now just starting to realize that things are different today than they were two years ago. 
But if you take a step back, you can see about two years ago, we transitioned out of the centralized single cloud to rule them all phase to the decentralized distributed multi-cloud world that we're probably going to live in for probably the next decade. So is this like the answer to cloud is more clouds? Uh, it's more clouds behaving like a system. That, that second piece is the most important thing people need to understand today. And what, we, what we've learned, you know, is most people are well underway on their digital journey. They're, 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 they're deploying AI, they're creating modern code, they're building new experiences. And as they did that, they started to accumulate presence in multiple clouds, more clouds, edge clouds, different public clouds, private cloud environments. What's interesting is they started to realize as they went down that journey that digital transformation requires this level of innovation and the cloud environments, public, private, edge, give us the capability to do that. But if we end up with a collection of random clouds as our infrastructure and no way to coordinate across it and to make it into a system, the exponential increase in chaos and effort that materializes is just overwhelming. And so the, the thing that people are really struggling with right now, and it's definitely what Dell Technologies is focused on, is well, we don't need to create more clouds. There's plenty of them. What we need to do is create unification technology. We need to create environments in which those clouds can actually talk to each other with consistent software-defined networking. They can communicate and share applications with things like Kubernetes across your public, mm -hmm. private, and edge clouds. They even need to have visibility and M&O management orchestration capability that allows you to, to kind of see the telemetry and understand the health of the multi-cloud, not just the individual clouds, or the economic cost of applications in the multi-cloud. That's new as of probably only a year, but that seems to be where we're, we're shifting our effort to, except that you will use different clouds because they're just pools of capability, and you're going to need lots of capability. But if you do it, if you stop there and don't have a strategy to pull them together and make them operate as a system, as you have more problems to solve, you will have more diverse infrastructure and that diversity will eventually overwhelm you without a unification strategy, which is really what things like our Dell Technologies cloud strategy and our work in Kubernetes and SDN environments are all about. You were responsible, you know, about five years ago uh, as, as Dell EMC started moving to OpenStack. Can you kind of just talk through that, um, that kind of process, that journey? Yeah, yeah. Open source is an interesting one. You know, we, we you know, five years ago, uh, you know, we as EMC, obviously we had EMC and uh, sorry, VMware was part of our portfolio along with a lot of other pieces. And, and then this, this, this initiative popped up called OpenStack. And OpenStack was, you know, an open source initiative to kind of build a cloud stack. Now, the reality is OpenStack outside of the telecom sector and a few large enterprises largely kind of faded away. But, but there's lessons learned about how you participate. In fact, uh, in fa when, I, when I came into the company, um, there was very much a open source is bad because we, you know, it's free. And, and somebody told me that the best way to think about it is, um, you know, the way to think about free software in the traditional world is not to think of it as free beer, but to think of it as free speech. And what we mean by that is there is an economic model underneath uh, open source software. It's designed to be monetized. It's just the monetization is a little yeah. different. It's not designed to demonetize the world. What it's really designed to do is to create an open community so that you can apply intellect from a lot of different places to solve these big problems. And so back five years ago, I was the guy that said, look, OpenStack is competitive to VMware, and, but there are customers that are going to use it. But more importantly, we see that there's potentially APIs and functions that are going to happen there that will be interesting to us 
and might standardize yeah. certain layers. And so, so I actually had to work through our legal department and work through the executive team and convince everybody that we should participate, especially in the storage world, because we were the largest storage provider in the world. And so we began contributing to Cinder and Swift and Manila, the various storage initiatives inside of OpenStack. We contributed IPR. We had never done that before. We allowed people to use our consistency group IPR and other capabilities. Uh, and, and all that did was it suddenly allowed our customers to stop thinking that there's this binary choice you have to make, closed source, proprietary commercial software or open source. In fact, and what's happened is after that, as we progressed, we've seen more of this blurring and the sources of innovation around software in our ecosystem have really now become two sources. There is internal commercially developed technology that comes from a, a vendor like us that provides a proprietary closed system. And those are very good and very important. But in many cases, we either build it with or surround it with or incorporate into it open source initiatives that fundamentally allow us to address a broader industry. A great example is our, our, uh, our, our VX rail product, which is the, the it's in this area called hyperconverged, easy way to consume infrastructure in kind of blocked block size building blocks, I guess. Um, Interestingly enough, today when you buy a VxRail, you, you get it with the hardware and the software, primarily VMware, to basically make it be a unit of infrastructure. But on top of that, there are options in it that add things like Cloud Foundry. Cloud Foundry is an open source initiative, or Kubernetes, an open source initiative that allow you to now not just have a closed proprietary system, but a maybe a stable platform, but a collection of open source tools that allow you to participate in broader ecosystems and get access to things like open container management or open platforms for your cloud native applications. And so the lesson learned is if we stayed in the old world, which was open source is, is diametrically opposed to a commercial software business, we would be in a much different place than we are today. And instead, by embracing it and starting with OpenStack and things like uh, OpenStack APIs into VMware, and then progressing into Cloud Foundry, and then progressing into Kubernetes, of which now we're one of the largest contributors to that project and are rolling it out across our entire portfolio. We actually are ending up with multiple sources of innovation coming together in a platform, and the net result is the customer gets a much more capable system that happens to come from different innovation models and different methodologies, but our job is to put it all together. And, you know, opening your eyes to this is important. I think the, the public clouds are going through that exercise right now. Most of the industry has now matured to this point that open source and closed source are not diametrically opposed. They are just two sources of innovation to build infrastructure. And to be perfectly honest, the good companies know how to use them both. Tell me a little bit about your role um, with Cloud Foundry, because I think that this is something that some of our listeners might be familiar with, might not be, um, but it's an absolutely uh, phenomenal organization. Yeah, yeah. Cloud Foundry is um, Cloud Foundry was a project that was created in VMware actually as part of when before Pivotal existed, uh, and then we essentially when we created Pivotal as a business and went uh, out of EMC and VMware, uh, we open sourced the the project. Now, what what Cloud Foundry is is it is the the largest open source platform as a service. Now. Interesting enough, when people hear platform as a service, they get confused about what, what are we talking about? Because inside of that platform, there's container management and there's, there's uh, you know, service meshes and there's all these underlying infrastructure components. 
But then on the top level, there's build packs, language support, development tools, this idea that you know it's really easy for a software developer to build a really complex application and put it into production. Um, and so a, as we started the Cloud Foundry journey, there was no such thing as a platform available. So it was the first one to materialize and it, it, it covered the infrastructure side and it also covered the developer experience. So you know, some people use the word DevOps. Well, the DevOps is two words, it's development and operations. Cloud Foundry did both. It did the development, uh, it made development easy of the applications, and it made operating those applications across a multi-cloud world possible. It was the only thing that could do that for cloud-native applications. Anyway, we, we brought it out into the open source. It got, we created a foundation. I've been the chair of that foundation since we created it. Uh, and people like IBM and HP and Cisco and SAP and, uh, you know, go through the Swisscom and Home Depot, and there's huge numbers of companies that join that foundation. And interestingly enough, today, probably close to half of the in-production composite cloud-native applications in the world are running on Cloud Foundry. IBM Bluemix uses Cloud Foundry. I think they have a new name for it now, but um, it's just everywhere. The funny thing is, as it's matured, what's happened is we no longer have to do everything inside of Cloud Foundry. So a couple of, uh, oh, actually less than a year ago, we made an announcement that said, hey, the dev and the ops world are now starting to separate a little bit. And so Cloud Foundry's mission going forward is to continue to be the development environment that people use to build these composite cloud-native applications, meaning collections of applications as microservices with their APIs, all working as a system to deliver, some, deliver something like a mobile experience or the interface into your cable systems or some of the largest cable operators or, or you know, the platform to manage logistics for the U.S. Air Force and refueling. These are all based on Cloud Foundry implementation. But what we recognized is underneath there, while we used to have to do all the container management ourselves, another industry called, ecosystem called Kubernetes materialized. And so we announced to say, well, why don't we just incorporate Kubernetes into this system and separate dev and ops a little bit further? And you know, that's a little detail that most people don't need to know. But what it shows is that as we progress forward, Cloud Foundry is a great example that the most important thing we needed to build was a path where a developer could go into production quickly. And in fact, Cloud Foundry still to this day provides the easiest tool. You create a set of applications, you, you, it gives you all the development tools, the build environment, the API management, but when you actually want to invoke that application, it's literally a command called CF push and the kind of application instance ID. And it gets pushed into production. You don't even think about how that happened. And if you want to scale it, you need more instances of it. It's command like CF scale at a number in the application instance. If that number is 10,000, the infrastructure just goes off and builds 10,000 instances. It makes sure they're running. It makes sure if they fail, they're recovered. It is predictable. All of this capability, which many people think is the future of the industry, has been available in things like Cloud Foundry for now going on four or five years. But it's a great example of that in certain areas, specifically very advanced cloud-native development, there's a lot of tools and technology that most of the industry and most customers haven't used yet. And those technologies are moving and progressing and advancing. And my advice to people is, as you're thinking about your software journey, you need to become very educated about the broader ecosystem that's available to you. So yeah, when we when we talk to a lot of you know technology leaders and CIOs, it kind of feels like there's 
there's that kind of never ending journey, uh, that ongoing, um, you know, escalator to the sky of, of digital transformation. How do you look at like maybe putting things in, in chunks or in pieces, um, or in places so that you can kind of hit certain milestones that you need to be at? Like, what are you talking about with people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first thing is to recognize that you're on a journey. You know, most people think you're on, you're looking for an event and, and, you know, digital transformation isn't like a, a point in time. It's a long-term journey that might go on well beyond your existence in whatever role you're in. So you, so you have to look at what, what's possible and, and try to figure out, you know, incremental steps in the right direction. You know, having a North star is important, you know, and I think everybody understands, you know, if you want to be a, you know, a, a, a automotive company these days, your North star is you better be on a path towards autonomous vehicles it might take 20 years to get there, but, but that's where you're going. Interesting enough then when you look at the technology, you have to kind of decide where, where are the best focus areas. And let me give you an example. AI is a fantastic one right now. Um, most people think they look at AI and they think it's, uh, you know, going to create, I don't know, the Terminator or something. You can do that. You can really create things that are science fiction. And the reality is that maybe you'll be able to do that at some point in your future. Um, but, but when people ask me what they should do, I actually tell them that the biggest application of machine intelligence is improving various business processes you have where you have to make predictable decisions by using machines to better make those decisions at places where it matters. And so if you look at your business process and you find a place where if you make a good decision, there's a net positive. And if you make a bad decision, there's a net negative. It might be predicting your supply chain. It might be predicting demand. It might be in the, in the case of a storage system, managing your cash inside of the system. Anywhere that there's a process where decisions are made, if you could improve those decisions using machine intelligence and have a material impact, it's probably worth doing. And it turns out that in many cases, the actual aspirational goal of those projects is to improve that decision by maybe 5%. Now, that doesn't sound very exciting, except imagine if you improve the inventory management of your supply chain by 5%. Or imagine if, in the case of our technology systems, inside of a PowerMax, which is a very high-end enterprise storage system, you can improve yeah. cash hits by 5%. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, except a cash hit has 80 times higher performance than a cash miss. <laughs> so improving yeah. it by 5% materially changes the performance of that system without adding hardware to it. Improving inventory management by 2% on a company like Dell that has a, you know, the largest supply chain in the technology world could be billions of dollars. Improving power consumption of a, a massive data centers by better light management and power management by 5% might result in $100 million in cost savings. And so we actually try to talk people down. And when they're on from the big aspirational goals, it, it's great to have them as a North Star. But the way you get there is one step at a time. And when you look at a new technology, ask how it might make forward progress in a way that's material and achievable using the technology you have today. Because otherwise you get overwhelmed by saying, I can't build the Terminator today because I don't have all the parts, therefore I'm going to do nothing. And if you do nothing, then all the people who start this incremental steps of improving their processes, improving their business, get ahead of you. And so the journey is a journey. There's a destination that you ought to be clear about and come up with an answer about where you're long-term going to end up. But then the progress through that journey is really about small bites of the apple, incremental improvement to the use of technology, and actually getting results. And in fact, in the AIML space, every business process you have can be improved. So pick the ones that are most important and try to make better decisions using machine intelligence. It will improve your business, full stop. And if you do that a number of times, you will eventually change the economics of your company and its competitiveness, and you'll be well on your way on that journey towards the destination of becoming a digital business in your domain. Um, but, but it's really a matter of separating the aspirational long-term goal 
from the tactics to get there. And the tactics around technology tend to be understand it well, understand what's achievable today, and go do it because those are steps to get you to bigger outcomes that will happen later. John, well, it has been absolutely awesome to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Any final thoughts? You know, so, so, so fundamentally, you know, our, our industry keeps changing. And, you know, any IT professional, CIO, IT director, technologist who, who wants to stand still probably is going to find themselves in an uncomfortable situation. But, but, but moving is good because, quite frankly, it, it results in, in progress. And so my, my advice to people is, you know, first... Uh, pay attention to all of the technology landscape. Ask questions. When you see something like 5G, don't just you know write it off. Ask, is this relevant to me? Ask your suppliers, ask your partners to, to, to help you understand the technology. But realize many of the technologies aren't going to matter in the near term, but they might be disruptive in the long term. AI is a great example where there are near-term implications and long-term implications. And the more you as a CIO understand those technologies and how they fit your world, and what the destination is, in this case, maybe to build a multi-cloud system as opposed to a collection of random clouds, you can start to develop that strategy to, to get to that point. And then to do that, the journey is a series of incremental steps where you exploit the technology to make progress in improving the efficiency and effectiveness of your organization. You know, uh, the reason I, I, I say that is that's, in fact, what Dell Technologies was built to do. We are here to be the essential infrastructure company of our industry. And we do that by basically helping customers on that journey. And so, you know, uh, closing thought is, look, we're all on the same journey. We built a company, $92 billion company, to help you on that journey, to be part of that journey. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, the only way that we, we ultimately are collectively successful is if every one of our customers, every business in the world becomes better, more efficient, more effective, more automated, and provides a better customer outcome. And the, the biggest tool that we have today to do that is the exploitation of technology and data. And the way to do that is investment in technology and, and, and paying attention to this space, which is the dialogue we want to be having with our customers and, and the area that we are focusing our innovation engine on. Awesome. Thanks, John. Everyone should check him out and give him, give him a follow on Twitter too. Great follow on Twitter. Um, and we'll link that up in the show notes. Um, appreciate having you on. Great. Thanks very much. Take care. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform.